Welcome to Adopting Zero Trust, an independent podcast that dives into the world of zero trust and tells the story of people who are adopting it. Throughout our series, we'll investigate why zero trust is becoming a critical concept for cybersecurity. Our hosts, Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis, will have transparent and open conversations with the people driving modern security approaches forward while leaving vendor hype behind. It's time to remove implicit trust and buzzwords and get to the root of the movement. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of AZT. I am your producer, Elliot. We have your co-host, Neil, and we have a wonderful guest here who's going to dig into a much-requested item, basically flagged from a previous conversation. With that said, Chris, I'm going to actually hand off the introductions to you so that I don't ruin anything that might be floating around in your LinkedIn resume. I want to make sure we present you in the best way possible. But Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and Core BTS? Yeah, I'm Chris Reinhold. I'm a director of innovation at Core BTS. And to look at what we, I do within the organization, you really have to think about it. I work with a lot of our clients, and my goal is really to pull technologies together from both the Microsoft and, and Cisco stacks to address clients, specifically more security-related challenges. So I get involved with, you know, like I said, from the Cisco networking, talking to our networking team, talking to our Microsoft security team, even working with our team that does network penetration and also governance risk and compliance. So pulling all those things together in projects, work of our clients to understand the requirements, and then pulling those into our projects and building a project form is, is really my focus. I come from a I guess a long background security, started in the military, worked in presidential communications, which is pretty darn secure in those days. So you had to really think about you know, who was accessing data, how they were accessing. Of course, back in that day, we didn't really have the internet. But then I joined Microsoft, spent 17 years at Microsoft, and most of my time at Microsoft was in the various areas of security, whether it's consulting with Microsoft clients or actually working with Microsoft security technologies and helping clients understand how those technologies apply to them. Joined Core BTS about almost 10 years ago now. And again, just been really focused around the security area. Very cool. So I think one of the questions I'm just going to throw out there, and it's kind of like a, the root of some of the issues that we usually focus on for the show is the buzziness and definition of zero trust. So we'll dig into what you feel zero trust means a little bit later on, I'm sure. But yeah. I think because you are working between the private and public sectors, I'd love just some general insight, and maybe this does breach down to the definition, but you know, where do you feel like the term lands? So in previous conversations that Neil and I have had with folks, government side, super clear that with mandates and um, some of the items coming down in the next couple of years, zero trusts, top of mind, totally fair game to use that term. Private enterprise organizations, maybe not so much, but I love just insight from your side as far as terminology goes and what seems to work best as far as that. So from a zero trust perspective, you know, when I ask, what does that mean? I think there's a lot of information out there and clients don't understand what zero trust is. You know, some clients almost get the feeling they're looking for a certification. What you know, can get zero trust certified? Well, not really. Right. And so where I kind of break it down to clients and you know, it's not often un, uh, un, or, you know, often that I go into a client and we talk about zero trust and they really don't get the idea. Right. And the way I kind of explain to them is, Consider I'm taking over your Azure directory environment. I have now locked it down. You've got to tell me what access you're, you need in your environment. I go, wait a minute, how do I get access to it? Well, let's talk about that, right? And I kind of start leaving that. So, okay, first thing you probably need is a global administrator, right? How are you going to let the global administrator, how do you know that person, who that person is, what systems should they be using? So I start that conversation that way. 
one thing I do start talking about very quickly is expand that out to different areas of the zero trust pillars. I call them the pillars, right? It's identity, it's workstations, it's networks and so forth. And really trying to bring that together for them because what I find clients today is they'll focus on one area. They don't really think about, well, there's identity, then there's workstations. How do I bring those together? And I think that's the key with zero trust is that you're taking an approach that I'm going to you know, basically assume my environment's compromised. How do I start minimizing the impact? And you got to really bring those different pillars together to really put that solution to, to, in place for the client. So that's been one of the challenges is really getting a client to think about that, right? And that's why I kind of go into that first conversation with a client and say, you have no access to your environment. What do you want? Then taking them from there, but then also bringing those other pillars, which a lot of times you'll get a client that gets focused on maybe just the workstation side or just the identity side. They don't think about their networks or what apps are accessing, or more importantly, is what data is out there and how should, what are the rules around accessing that data? So a lot of clients don't kind of get into that until you start expanding that concept out to them to really get what zero trust is. Excellent. Yeah, I think that makes a great deal of sense. And I'll say, I think one of the core pieces of messaging around zero trust is something that you flagged, and I don't think we've actually come across this on conversations with previous episodes, which is kind of weird, but you had mentioned that you should go into the notion that your network is or may be compromised. How do you kind of navigate that as a conversation? Because obviously that could, you know, scare some people and they're like, no, I'm totally secure. I've got this locked down. But like, how do you navigate it around a conversation about that when, you know, that is a critical talking point that, you know, you should run under the notion that you are compromised? Yeah, I think that's an area you got to approach carefully, right? You don't want to upset someone and saying you're compromising and say, how do you know that? It is with a concept that most organizations today, and it's changing though, really think about security from their internal network. They were able to put firewalls up in place, block the traffic. They had the key cards at the front door. Now they're participating in this new cloud-centric environment. They really got to think beyond that. And that's where you start asking questions. How do you know where this person is logging into? Do you know what workstation they're logging in from? And if they come back and say, well, we really don't know. We don't have a good way of defining that. That's where you say, well, how do I trust that workstation, right? That could be a compromised workstation. And you start your conversation that way. I don't necessarily go in and say your environment's compromised and then work from there. It usually kind of, I would say, kind of stops the conversation pretty quickly. <laughs> well, yeah, the moment you start throwing up flack about how bad they really are without, you know, without proof just yet, even though you know it's likelihood, then people do get a little overly defensive. I kind of actually want to take maybe a step backwards, if that's okay, real quick on a question. So... I try to keep copious notes now. I'm learning my lessons on how to be a good orator here and write stuff down so I can come back to it and actually pay attention during the meantime. That being said, you kick this off really straightforward with people look for certs or people look for something to rubber stamp and say, I am this, right? Right. So I want to just quick anecdote. And then the question, I was at Space ISAC conference last week, the Value Space Summit, and DHS was presenting and that question came up. Literally, do you think, or someone asked, is there a cert for zero trust? And if not, then we think that will happen. So throw that question back out to you a little bit. I know what my personal response is, but out of curiosity, given where things are going, do you think there will not necessarily rubber stamp to say, congratulations, you're done? Because I don't think you're ever done, but necessarily right. a, a third party entity that meets government standards to help you provide and understand what that actually is as a standardization. Do you think that's yeah. a plausible outcome sometime? I think at some point in time, there might be a good audit, right? Are you following good practices around uh, 
zero trust. And the way I kind of, reason I don't think there'll be, I go in your environment, I check to make sure you have the right switches in place is that each of that, each of those switches might be different for different clients based on scenarios. So the way I kind of have that conversation with clients is really, I start backing that conversation up <laughs> above the technical, really above the technical infrastructure and say, okay, what policies, what regulations are you under as, as an individual, as a company? That could be your you know, HIPAA regulations. It could be GDPR. It could be CMMC type of you know, guidance or regulations you're under as organization. So my next step with the client says, okay, where's your organizational governance policies? How are you taking those regulations you're supposed to follow and taking those and operationalizing with the organization? So do you have a policy out there that says, as an example, here's my MFA policy. Here's where it applies. Here's where it doesn't apply. Do your end users know about it? Are they trained about it? Do they understand it? Does your IT team understand it, right? So that way, when I look at an organization and say, okay, here's your policy, great, I've got that. Now I know what we need to do with from a zero trust perspective. I know what pieces I need to bring in to accomplish that policy. And I think that's where we're gonna see the certification kind of, or approval, or where we want to call it, kind of start focusing on, right? What are you under? Because each organization is different, right? You might be, a government organization, but you're dealing with healthcare information. You might be dealing with drawings for the next weapon system. And maybe in the government perspective, you're dealing with DOD, right? It's all about how you take those policies, transform them into the organizational policies. And then as technical individuals, we'll come in and say, okay, how do we transform those for organizational policies into a framework that applies those to a technical side of it? There might be also at some point in time, we're actually investigating this within our organization is do we do some sort of network and physical assessment with that client, right? Now that we got it in, how do we know we got everything fit in place, right? Did we miss anything as part of that? Or, you know, a lot of organizations we go into as a consulting organization, we're kind of dropped in the middle. We really don't know the infrastructure, right? So how do you validate that? So we actually have a penetration testing team uh, that is able to do both physical and network related. So that's kind of the validation. So I would think at some point in time, we're going to get to that point where we can actually you know, just like clients today when they do HIPAA certifications or have HIPAA audits, right? They're doing that today, right? How do you actually take those policies, operational organizations, and then how do you apply the controls to those policies? That makes sense. Yeah, I think that might be a better approach than one overarching, here you go, rubber stamp thing. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah, I kind of look at I, what would happen with NIST, right? I have clients that go out and they'll go look at the NIST requirements. They look at here's a configuration. They'll throw it out and say, okay, now we're NIST compliant, but they've created themselves a bunch of problems. In fact, I had a client that did that, and that's why I don't see that for zero trust. They did that in Active Directory, right? They hit the NIST standards for Active Directory, create the group policy objects. It was only an organization, about 200. There were executives. Out of 200 people, they had 280 group policies because they had all these exceptions, Right. And I said at that point in time, you don't have group policies anymore. You got individual policies. And I think that's where it's it's important, right? To make those decisions and make sure the organization is aligned with those policies, right? To me, and there's been times I've gone into organizations and said, yeah, you know, based on Microsoft recommendations and our approach in this particular industry, here's what I recommend from policy perspective and active directory or Azure directory. You put it in place and then all of a sudden you get these complaints back and the complaint is, why do I have to do this? Well, because of its you know, recommended practices. And the next question comes in, where's the policy that supports this? Well, there isn't one. And now you kind of <laughs> step back and figure out the policy. So we talk about, we would much rather have the policy drive the configuration of zero trust versus the configuration of zero trust drive the policies. That makes a lot of sense. That's no, a good take for sure. 
so on that same note, thinking a little bit further down, and I know Elliot and I both want to get back to the pen test stuff a little bit <laughs> on how you approach it that direction, but moving through it, thinking about when we talk about compliance versus policy, are you still seeing a lot of people who are overly fixated on compliance versus actual security when you go into this? Are you like seeing people who, they, I mean, you got to check the buttons. You definitely yeah. got to check the little cogs off for sure. You need to be compliant. But there's more to security than compliance, right? So are you still having to fight kind of the battle of moving people beyond just base compliance to actually get them secure as you go through this type of process? Yeah, I would say in a couple of ways that shows up, either they don't have the right policies in place, right? We don't have the good compliance policies you can make those decisions. The other one we run into is their policies they have in place are old and they don't support the new technologies within the Microsoft. I'll just use the Microsoft framework, right? We can use different tools today, but if their policies don't allow us to use those, we're kind of stuck. So we often will do a review of their policies and make sure that your policies will allow us to leverage those new technologies to support the zero trust framework. So that's, you know, that's one thing I do see today is, uh, is that type of situation. So for a good example, right, we've been getting a lot of calls here recently around uh, cyber security insurance. And as part of that, they're saying, we need multi-factor authentication. And I go and talk to client, what does that mean? Well, we need multi-factor. And we really, what they're asking for is strong authentication. Can I use other methods that may not need a traditional multi-factor? I don't have to put a pen code in or respond to a multi-factor verification request. Maybe I can use FIDO2. Maybe I can use biometrics. The problem is the policies that they're given or guidance they're given by that cyber security insurance company don't allow that. It's where I have to have some conversation. We need to go back and say, these are actually better authentication methods. So that's a great example where we see some of the, that's where I kind of bring up the policies are lagging the technology I can bring to bear to solve these situations. I love that. And I think that's a great example. You go out and someone's know you will have an app on your phone and you will do some kind of 2FA, not even MFA in the true sense, right. but just basic 2FA tokenized auth. And then I always like to bring up distributed ledger and other weird things along the blockchain. I'm like, you realize if we were to go this route, the insurance company probably never have to pay you because this is actually secure, or at least for the time being. Now that, that's a really good point. Awesome. So when you come into stuff like that <clears throat> and we think about, we think about the MFA piece, we think about the policy pieces and someone's got all that in place. What is your kind of first step then to like you getting into the actual assessment and basically obliterating them and showing them that they really haven't done what they think they've done <laughs> in a nice polite manner. So, I mean, you, we talked about policy procedure, having those discussions. I think those are important, but when you start to actually get into the network and things like that, what is it that you're really like in the system, really starting to try to probably look at least. It's a couple of different things, right? We kind of break it down within our team. We'll have a team of experts to take a look at certain parts and make sure that those systems are in place and we're following those policies. So for identity perspective, we'll sit down with them and understand how you're managing that identity. That's an area I get quite involved with with our clients is understanding how secure is that identity, how you maintain that identity. You know, a lot of people think that, hey, I just put multi-factor on an identity in Azure Active Directory, I'm fine. We step it back even further than that. We'll go look and say, how's the Active Directory set up? How you maintain that? Because that's a source of identity for Azure Directory. We even go back on that and say, okay, how do you know that person was hired yesterday? How do you know that their title has changed? So it's really evaluating kind of the end to end to make sure we've got good processes in place. We do the same thing, workstations. How do you build those workstations? How do you validate that image or validate that initial build? How do you maintain that image as you move forward? Because you, as part of zero trust, 
you're making decisions on, is this device or identity compliant? Can I trust this identity? If I can't go back to the source, let's put it that way, and validate from the source up that, yep, that everything is compliant, it fits the model, fits the process and the requirements of the organization, we really can't say we've got zero trust. So we do tend to step back with our experts into, you know, from you know, where does that, where do we start establishing trust? Where does that really need to come from and make sure that's in place? That makes a lot of sense. It sounds like from a consultancy perspective, y'all y'all take a little bit more hands-on holistic approach than probably the one or two people who get tasked, obviously, at a company be like, congratulations, go make zero trust a reality. Yeah. And I, you know, so I worked as a consultant for a little bit off and on. I was with Booz Allen and a few others back in the day, and mostly government, had one commercial client and government versus commercial in the commercial world, they bring us in for a couple of months to fix a problem. Government keeps you there to fill a seat, right? <laughs> but that being said, y'all coming in and actually addressing a problem, coming in and being that third party external source of information. I kind of maybe for me personally, love to hit on that just a little bit around the intent and impact of that. So we get in the wine industry, we get what we call a seller blind, where you're only drinking your stuff and you think it's the greatest thing because you haven't tried anything else out in the whole world, right? Yeah. So 10 years later, it tastes like gasoline, but you still think it tastes like some Bordeaux from 1980 from France. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, from that perspective, you know, maybe hit on like why it might actually be important to have a company like yourself come in and provide those third-party interests, those third-party assessments. Yeah. I think that's a key thing. I think that's good for an organization to bring an outside organization. In. You know, from our perspective is that we've got experience. Let's say you're a healthcare organization. We do a lot of healthcare type of work. We're working with other healthcare organizations. So we're bringing our experiences and lessons learned, also called bumps and bruises, right? Around some of these deployments into that conversation with that client. So you're getting that broad perspective, looking across multiple clients in that field to say, you know, here's what we see from that part of the, you know, Here's what we see the industry going. Here's the challenges we see. You know, if you do this in a healthcare organization, this is a challenge you could run into. We would consider you move this direction. So we can provide a lot of that guidance in. So that's, you know, organizations, you know, as you said, you know, get focused on their technology. We're thinking we're doing a great job, but uh, you know, we can bring that broader industry experience in and, and kind of give them that broader perspective, give them some other things to think about. It, 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 a lot of clients, you know, we do assessments, right? The clients will ask us to come and do an assessment. We don't know where we are. We don't know where our weak points are. Help us identify that. So in our organization, we're kind of unique in that we can go from, like I said, oh, we've got a couple of team members that can look at the organizational policies and say, do we have the right policies in place? Are you educating users as part of that? Okay, well, that's good to know. We can do the technical part of it and say, is the environment configured up? We're looking at those policies and aligning that to how you're managing your environment. We can do that. And the other thing we're starting to look at is how do we take our penetration testing team and say, okay, let's take the, let's take an outside view, right? Let's assume we don't know what's configured in there. Let's try to use the common techniques that people that are wishing to you know, harm you as an organization would use to come in the organization. So that our team will do that. They'll do, they'll sit down and it's kind of interesting. You could talk to them, they'll do research on organization. They'll understand how they're put together, what services they have out there. If we're doing physical, they actually try to figure out what the physical of the organization looks like. A good example is that for one of the clients, they were able to figure out a floor plan and knew where the various offices were. And so they'll try to do that because if you look at zero trust, we don't talk about you know the building, but if I can't trust the building that I got my people in, that's a bit of a challenge. So I think that's where we're providing a lot of value to our clients is that we can take different views of that compliance and what it means to make sure everything is starting to line up with the organization. We're taking also that outside kind of 
I don't know what's in there, but I'm going to try to figure out how to get into it. Right. That type perspective. So I, I'm going to unpack this one. I love this. I, one of the very first things I did after getting off of active duty, I went very, very part-time work for a tiger team back in the early, like 2006, seven, eight timeframe. So we did full throttle, like you're talking about physical and digital stuff. I think it's very important to highlight <clears throat> the aspects of what a physical assessment goes into play with the digital assessment. So I think from, you, you touched on this a little bit, finding building specs, figuring out where the server farm is or figuring out where the security desk is. From the physical aspects of zero trust, what are some of those things that y'all have kind of helped highlight, whether it's you know back to policy and batch policy, door policies, uh, Whatever that I sincere curiosity around what that starts to look like outside of what I'm used to in the government world, where it's one giant door with a guy with a gun, you badge in, and once you're yeah. in, everything's pretty much done, right? So, yeah, I'd love to hear from that perspective what y'all end up out from that. Yeah, it's starting to highlight you know definitely weaknesses we see with you know various parts of the building. So, how do people discriminate who should be in that building versus not be in that building? You know, how easy is it to get a key card from someone and actually scan it, right? And that's kind of the the trick our team will use will act like they're a security and say, they need to check your card and they'll actually be able to scan it and duplicate it. So it gets into various areas of the infrastructure and understanding what, you know, how do I get in that building? What was interesting in some of these examples is getting in the building may not always be going to that server room. And yeah. the cases that we put in place in some of the organizations, we'll create a phishing campaign. We'll take a you know, little poster, stick up in the office, you know, uh, lunch room or break room or by the printer and say, Hey, there's a free offer here. You sign up. Well, it's inside a building. It must be okay. Right. <laughs> and uh, we'll use that as a phishing attempt. So we'll also go in and, you know, tap in behind it. Let's say use tools to tap into various parts of the network to start gathering data, understand who's logging in and do the, are they using good security methods? And also it's an opportunity for us to actually, with, again, not being in that server room, they also can I do start attacking the domain controllers. Can I get those access to those domain controllers and start compromising the environment? So that really highlights the need for that physical component of that conversation when you do zero trust is that if I can't trust the building I'm in and letting by in, you know, there's could be a lot of interesting things going on there. Yeah, I know we like to say a lot, physical access trumps anything else at the yep. end of the day. Yep. No, that's good. I love the poster idea. That's honestly not one I've thought of. I've done some other weird stuff, but I've never thought about it as simple as putting a poster up with the website. It was, it was surprising how effective that, like that was. And within a very short period of time, they had some <laughs> credentials they could do some work with. Let's put it that way. It didn't take much. <laughs> I'm going to do that one next time if I ever get back into that. But yeah, no, thank you. That's good stuff. So, I mean, it, it all makes sense. So I think for the sake of what Ellie and I have done on the show before, we've never really talked about the physical aspect. We never really talked about blatant assessments post implementation or yeah. figuring out where you need to go during an implementation. So that's why this is a fun chat. The, you know, we've talked about people who have built things, but they've never necessarily had to really worry about someone like yourself coming in and ripping them asunder post-implementation even. So that's cool. So thank you for that. The physical aspects are very near and dear to my heart because I was the guy that used to have to go into the building and get thrown out by security. I was and usually the guy that, that had to defend against you guys. So <laughs> military base. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, you might have, well, I, I mean, I know you were in, in the 90s and I was doing this in the mid 2000s, but someone like you probably probably handcuffed me, put me back into a SP car at one point in time, a few times, but yeah, we would do that. We'd have, you know, probably familiar, we would have people penetrate, try to penetrate the base on purpose and <clears throat> we would try to figure out where they are and, and take care of it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Good response times at some places, you know, yeah. Air Force could be a little slower at bigger bases, but you know, 
Never had to worry about the Navy guys, man. They seem to only just do nothing but walk the fence line all day. But on that note, so <laughs> thinking about this a little bit more, I don't know why they were always a little quicker to respond. They had bigger facilities to protect, but there's usually like half of the manning at the Air Force facility. Maybe it's because the Air Force had better lunches and they were usually in the cafe, you know, at the mess. We, nicer bases, area, but, yeah. we won't get into that yeah. conversation. No. <laughs> that being said, so coming back to the pen test side of the house. So you do physical, you mix the fun stuff with the digital, you do the fishing aspects, both, you know, once again, paper and online. I love that. That's good stuff. And then uh, when you come back into this, moving from the physical to digital aspects, again, you're doing these assessments out of mild curiosity, you know, I know engagements can vary. It's all based off of what they're paying you for and what kind of engagement they want. But let's say if you're doing just a pure digital engagement and they want just a straight up pen test, no, mm -hmm. no external consultation pre pen test, other than that we're hiring you do this basic assessment, pen test, actual pen test, and then come back in post um, run on average, what does y'all's engagements tend to look like for something like that? I mean, is it a, couple of weeks, a couple of months. I know it's client dependent at the end of yeah. the day, really, but you know, as an average rule of thumb, what can someone expect if they hire you to do a pen test to do that zero trust argument? What would that could? It's usually a couple of weeks, right? It takes us to do a pen testing. Again, it depends on a variety of factors there, but at the end of the day, you know, the goal is to do those the penetration testing externally is to look for those common vulnerabilities, look for the bad configuration of firewalls and so forth and start out, uh, highlighting that. We also look at, you know, what's the patching level of your servers? That could be an opportunity for us to identify a vector from that perspective. So all that comes into play. And we do say, you know, typical of pen testing, you run your set of tools against that environment. Also use some tricks up your sleeve to kind of exploit it a little additionally, right? To find some other areas. But at the end of the day, the client gets, a, you know, the list of here's what we found. Here's the high, low, medium type of risk we see in an environment. And, what we're starting to do too is start to kind of take that and say, okay, how can we help you? And it goes right back to zero trust, especially for a client that just you know, simply is looking from outside in. Okay, well, we found some open holes there. Let's figure a way out of addressing that in a much more holistic way. Maybe it's not just the network interfaces we need to look at or the network devices we need to look at or the servers. Maybe it's how we're authenticating the user or maybe it's how we protect the data net on that server. What tools can we bring into that equation for that client? Because as you think about, you know, you always assume a potential compromise is what if I lose that data? How can I maintain control of that data? And there's ways we can do that with an organization that is it leaves, it may inadvertently leaves the organization. How can we maintain control of that data and prevent it to being used? That makes a lot of sense. So I think on that next steps, coming back in consultative, once again, we talked a little bit about, you know, third-party impact and why it's yep. important to get that type of assessment. <clears throat> and then kind of thinking about the driving force and uh, next steps on that. So on the, on that note, when we think about, well, I guess slight different question, do y'all ever get hired just to come in and do policy procedural reviews or is, or do y'all tend to do kind of a more holistic package? Let's do reviews. Let's do the assessments. Let's do, or do y'all even take it back a step instead of a full throttle pen test kind of perspective? Do y'all ever do just actual like vulnerability assessments instead? We'll pretty much do all those, right? The team actually we work with at Core BTS. We were actually, I was part of another company that was acquired and we started integrating with Core BTS. Actually, the government's risk and appliance team and the penetration testing team was pretty much set off on its own. We didn't really integrate a whole lot with the organization. That's one of the big changes we've made over the last year or so is really integrate that as part of our processes. But that team is definitely set up to, to do the policy and procedure reviews. And in fact, we've got clients that on a 
yearly basis will have us come in and do a review, do an assessment and help them understand where they are with the policies and procedures. If necessary, we'll come in and actually set, help them with it. You know, here, let's provide some base policies for you. Let's help you go through this process to make sure those policies are in place. So what we've done over probably the last year and a half is really start integrating these various components into the overall flow of a project we have within core BTS. So, you know, years past, you know, four or five years ago, our team would go in, do the technical work. And, you know, the problems I would typically run in are ones I kind of described earlier. Well, why are we doing this? Right. Or we go ask clients. So what is your BYOD policy? Well, we don't have one. Okay. Well, we kind of need one so we can figure out what we need to do here. So now that we've got this team integrated within core BTS, we actually now are able to do from that, you know, policy procedures. Let's see what you have. I mean, we can just do those type of engagements or we can just do the, you know, the typical word, you know, migrating a client to Microsoft 365 or doing some sort of work with them. Let's make sure we include security or after the work, we can you know, do that too. So we now have brought all those components together for our clients to really provide that comprehensive end-to-end -end type of solution. And, you know, our organization, what's interesting about it is from a technology perspective, you know, is that we get involved from, as I've talked about, network infrastructure, we'll get involved with the data, how the data is being managed. We even do application development within Core BTS. So even our team, with, with when we do application development, we're helping the, that team understand how do you integrate some of those core, uh, core zero trust principles into your development or the technology. Or when we deploy that technology within a like, cloud environment like Azure or uh, other services similar to that, how do we make sure that infrastructure is ready to, to support that environment? A lot of it's based on zero trust principles. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So thinking some more on this a little bit, and then maybe I'll let Elliot finally say some things here. Yeah. I know he's still got some questions to go through that, that I'd love to hear. Kind of thinking about the totality of this then, the would you agree that when you go down any security rabbit hole, not just zero trust as a whole, but in general, that it is very important to set up a recurring thematic within the company to assess and reevaluate those policies oh, yeah. and procedures you put into play? Yeah. Uh, I. And there's so many things that changes, right? The policies could change. The, you, know, you know, we see constant updates to the regulations that are out there like HIPAA or GDPR. So you need to evaluate that. The one of the things that, you know, from just a technology perspective, and you know, I deal with a lot of the Microsoft technology, there's been a number of times I've looked back at projects I've done in the past and say, well, gee, there's this new capability from Microsoft. If I had that capability, I've been able to either enable new scenarios or improve that scenario for the end user. Because ultimately what we try to do is make sure that at the end of the day, you know, with zero trust, there's a definitely a security side of it, but you also have to consider you got to enable the business. That's the real purpose of IT is to enable the business to take on new opportunities, be competitive. So you're always looking, how can I make this situation better for the end user? Make it much more friendlier for them, right? So they're not saying all these, seeing all these barriers and trying to work around them. We're actually working with those end users and help them understand, here's the technology, here's how we can improve your environment, make it easier for you. So that's actually a critical part of a lot of our interactions with our clients is, uh, is that constant conversation around, you know, how's this affecting end users? How do we educate the end users? So they're part of the equation, not just something that they have to deal with. You know, a lot of IT people, you know, tend to want to put the technology and not really think about the end users, unfortunately. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I worked in the OT side of the world a little bit too. And it, it's interesting to come across the IT people, like you mentioned, who don't really understand what they're actually supposed to be providing, yeah. which is access, you know, availability versus other stuff. Anyway, Elliot, I'm going to throw it back over to you. Yeah. So let's get into some of those most critical questions about zero trust in general. So I know we had sort of 
jumped into this a little bit in the past, but you know, just as the rawest form, how would you actually define zero trust today? If someone came up to you and said, I want to adopt it, usually it'd probably come in the form of they think it's a product or maybe they think it's a checkbox, but you know, in your mind, how would you define it? I kind of describe it, right? And you're right. Your people think it's a, you know, a set of technologies where, hey, I pull this toolkit and I click these buttons and now I'm zero trust. I kind of really describe to, to clients I work with, it's a way of thinking, right? It's a way of thinking about your environment. And it's really saying, what scenarios am I willing to support for people to access services that I'm providing with the organization? How do I verify that is the scenario that I'm going to allow? And how do I make sure that, you know, if there's something that changes as part of that scenario, I can immediately identify that and remediate that issue. So I really think about it as how do I think about zero trust, right? It's, it's all about, as I kind of mentioned at first, is really understanding what you're trying to do with the services you're providing, identifying the scenarios and make sure those scenarios are secure. And that's why a lot of clients, you know, it's kind of interesting clients will come like, oh, we're not ready for zero trust. We're not ready for the certification. Like, Don't worry about it. It's a way you think about it, right? And that's how we think as our team goes out and works our clients. It's not something we kind of do a tagline and say, you know, we're going to implement zero trust. It's just the way our team thinks about when we work with our clients, how we approach security. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful way to approach it. I think there's just a lot of ingrained notions that come along with our space where, you know, obviously cloud, that's very much a product driven concept. If you're looking at SOAR or automation, a lot of, of these kind of buzzy terms are relevant to some sort of piece of technology, or maybe it could be like a process thing. But yeah, it absolutely is just ingrained in our industry where if we are using a new, new term, it is either some sort of process or technology based thing, and there's not a whole lot in between. So I think for Neil and I in particular, that's why we've kind of dug into this and why there's so many different flavors for every single you know group or person that we chat with. It's just, you know, it's going to change. And I think that actually is fine. I don't think yeah. that we need like a proper unified definition of what this looks like. As long as we you know people start to navigate away that this is not about technology. It's about, you know, building a baseline from zero or something to that extent. Well, I think Chris made a good mention at the beginning of this when we asked, when I'm talking about certifications versus not, right, and data standards. You know, Chris, you mentioned in, in a roundabout way that at the end of the day, it should be incumbent upon the industry vertical that you're trying to be compliant with and secure within to kind of help define and shape what it means to be zero trust within mm -hmm. like the healthcare industry or the financial services. Because what thresholds that a customer is willing to put up with in, in a banking environment is not the same as what one might be willing to put up with when they go get their medical records to take to a doctor, right? Different thresholds of experience and expectation. So kind of thinking about the roundabout way of you go to a conference right now and to Elliot's point, there's zero trust over everything, right? <laughs> so I think it's incumbent upon us to help people understand that, you know, just because blank company says zero trust, they're, that what they really mean is they're doing the same thing with new names. Yes, it is technically still zero trust by what definitions we currently have, but don't just go out and buy it because it says zero trust on the package, yeah. on the printing. The, the good thing about zero trust, what it's helped highlight, right, and is you can't focus on one thing, right? And as we go back to I mean, legacy infrastructure, legacy IT days, right, it was the network that was everything. And a firewall, that was my protection barrier. Everybody focused on the firewall and assumed everything was okay inside because the my firewall was good. I think today with zero trust, what it's really brought about is this, it's actually different parts of it, right? I can't solve all my problems with just one of those areas. I can't just be identity, I can't just be workstations. I've got to include all these conversations together. So 
it's really what I'm seeing is organizations having to really say, okay, now I, got, I really got to talk to the workstation guys, make sure we understand what we're doing, right? If they say that's compliant, I need to understand that's compliant so I can, when I build my zero trust policy or build my Azure directory conditional access policy, I can say, yep, I know it's a compliant device because this is why, yeah, this is why this device, or, you know, what data am I going against, right? Is this sensitive data? So let's define the data, right? No one ever talks about, is this public data? It doesn't matter what, everybody can access it, or is this highly confidential data that if it's released could uh, cause financial harm to the organization? There's different policies there and different tools you bring into play. And I think that's where I've seen zero trust really aid us in that conversation is, you know, all these, even though you go in, everybody's got kind of different variation, what's kind of common is they're talking about different areas you know, bring those areas together to bring that cohesive solution together versus the IT, the workstation guys do their own thing and they go apply the NIST principles and so forth. We're done, you know, we don't have to talk to the identity guys. Well, that's only part of the equation. Absolutely agree with that one. So I think if we're looking at bridging from definitions and kind of splitting with our different flavors, I'm curious on your side of the house. So no one just kind of understand zero trust obviously there's a lot of critical resources out there at nist but yeah. you know how do you wrap your head around that because obviously you're being you know brought into the equation for how do we bring this to an organization multiple times but yeah how do you wrap your head around what zero trust is and then how do you convey that back out to people it could be as simple as just resources that you kind of get started with yeah, that's where I guess that's where our government's kind of risk compliance team comes in. Very helpful, right? They help us understand what's important, what needs to be in place, because you know part of their function is also looking at the security methodologies they're implementing. Are they implementing NIST? Are they implementing other frameworks? And how do we bring that together in part of that conversation? You know, our team members are very familiar with various those frameworks, so they understand what's in those frameworks, and definitely have conversations around that. But that really helps us align the organization, why we're doing this and applying the right principles in the right places. So that's, you know, I would say that goes back to reason why we're starting to bring the GRC team in more often is to really help us define and make sure we're focused on the right thing. Because those policies, those regulations, those frameworks change all the time. So it's, you know, I don't sit there, unfortunately, read them all day long. And, you know, it's my favorite thing to do on a nice Saturday night, sit down by the fire and <laughs> read a compliance policy. But this team is involved with it. Plus they're seeing, again, from their perspective, they're seeing across industry too. So if a hospital organization is implementing certain policies, they know that, hey, we need to look at this at other organizations, make sure we see alignment through, uh, through all those. Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't think that many people that we've had conversations with have really aligned around the c compliance aspects of this. So I work in that world right now, so I totally understand that is just like baseline materials for organizations. So it's kind of interesting that it's just not like a repetitive concept that comes no, up. And but, I think yeah. a lot of clients do too, right? And the, the word I hate to hear, right? When I go into the client, well, just do what's best practices. And I said, first of all, let's get the <laughs> first, let's establish there is no best practices. I have recommendations and it's based on mm -hmm. your organization, how you how you need to apply those policies in your organization, how you manage at, you know, uh, the requirements around those regulations and policies you're supposed to follow. That is what I'm going to be helping you with, right? It's not, I've got my toolkit, here's my PowerShell script and I come in and, you know, two seconds, I've got you zero trust because that's what's best for you. <laughs> there is no best practice and that's something we've, even internally with core BTS, we've started removing that term. We don't do best practices. We do what's recommended for you in your industry. Amen to that. <laughs> Ain't got much else to add to that statement. That's awesome. 
<laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I think that's what everyone's hoping eventually will be tied to the next, you know, cybersecurity related buzzword is it'll be that silver bullet. But I mean, anyone that's ever spent, you know, five minutes in this space, there's no such thing as that silver bullet. Uh, there's no magical solution that you can just follow the rails and it'll solve all of your issues. But yeah, it, I think every single episode, I don't care if we have to hammer this into people's head, you know, it's just, there's, I fully agree. There's no such thing as really best practices. Every organization is different. They all have different technology and being able to map things, even at, at the compliance framework level makes sense where, you know, you align it and you customize it towards your to your yeah. needs. And we just need to continue to communicate that. I think the other thing the organizations don't take in consideration, the best practices, the other thing I always have to kind of dive into is exceptions, right? There's always going to be exceptions. So plan for it. Yeah. The way we build, for example, the conditional access policies in Azure directory, we are assuming it an exception. So let's build it in. So even as long as you get a process to request an exception, manage that exception, then assistants should be able to respond to the exception. What you don't want to have is accession becomes the norm. And that's where we try to work not to get to that point. But I think that's what also challenges people when it comes to zero trust is it's got to be zero trust. I can't do anything. You know, it's got to be this hard cover, right? I put around, there's no way to, well, I need to do this for business purposes. So what's the exception process around that? Yeah, I think that's the hard part, right? You're trying to build these policies and procedures, these workflows to be zero trust, but in all fairness, at the end of the day, there's always more than likely, at least on a current tech stack, going to be at least a few things that are going to have exceptions to that capability. Yeah. And they're going to require that other additional layer of monitoring within the team to make sure that everything's good to go. I mean, you can't go and tell the CEO that, you know, he's got to use eight different ways to log in now. And they can only <laughs> log in from this laptop between the hours of eight and five. And God forbid the man gets on a plane to go to Singapore for a conference. And then you tell him, nope, sorry, you're completely geo bound. Good luck. Um, <laughs> stuff right. like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Always exceptions, unfortunately, yeah. to every security implementation, no matter what you do. There are definitely ways to minimize that impact. With zero trust, and obviously there is a technology component, especially because we're seeing a lot of startups rally around concepts. So be it zero trust network access or something to that degree. What are your thoughts on the necessity that comes along with integrations into existing tools and whatnot? I feel like that is an area that seems to hang out on the side where we're seeing a lot of really cool concepts come out of startups and a lot of VC dollars are fueling that. But, you know, where is your head as far as necessary integrations and how important an organization should, I guess, look at tools that have those kind of integrations? As far as integration, so you're looking at integrations with other tool sets, right? As we're kind of gathering here. Or, yeah, um, exactly. So I mean, it can any, be any of the primary stuff that you use now. So Cisco, Microsoft. It's important to have that integration in place. And that's why I kind of talked about, you know, a lot of times organizations, they take a look at that tool and, you know, they're taking only a look at part of their environment. That's why I kind of talk about, you know, we still have to deal with on-premises. A lot of people think about zero trust. They're thinking about the cloud. That's why in our organization, we take a look at well, what are you doing on-premises, right? How do we start integrating those tools with on-premises? Can we provide additional information that helps us make decisions? So we do look for solutions that help us kind of address all those frameworks or all those areas, I should say, of a solution and make sure that we're not leaving something that's uh, not being monitored is the best way to describe it, but not being part of that zero trust equation. You know, as an example of today, you know, when we go and do active directory work, you know, active directory is kind of 
where everything starts, you know, we work with clients to deploy the Microsoft tools that are able to identify potential threats in that Active Directory. Because, you know, it, you see a lot of things in Azure, you see a lot of events, you see a lot of technology there. But if I'm not understanding what's going on with my Active Directory, that can be a open area that allows a person that's malicious in nature or maybe even accidental to create a lot of damage within the organization. So when I look at tool sets there, I try to look at, is it addressing all those areas? Are we missing any areas and what are tools, actually what are tools maybe we need to bring into that conversation with a client to make sure that we do have a good coverage of all those areas so we understand what can we trust is really what you get down to zero trust. I got to trust it, all right? So you start with the idea too. I don't trust anything. So how do I start establishing trust? And it's like, okay, do I trust my HR team to hire a person correctly? Well, hopefully yes. Can I trust the data out of the HR system? Well, that goes to my active directory. And then you kind of go down the road there and start establishing that, that, you know, that kind of chain of trust. Wow. I wish I asked that earlier because I guess the aspects of third-party vendor management and security reviews is always a fun can of worms to crack open. Yeah, but with that yeah. said, I think we'll save that for another episode. That's, well, that's quite all right. <laughs> so yeah, we with that Chris being said, back. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So with that being said, Chris, absolutely thrilled that you were able to join and share some of your expertise here. So I think we're kind of getting to wrap up this episode. So thank you so much for bringing some visibility into what you all are doing at Core BTS and just kind of some of these other aspects that Neil and I have been kind of wondering about everything from on-prem aspects of zero trust to pen testing. So you have finally checked some of those boxes for us. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Like I said, this great conversation. So thank you. And hopefully Ellie can find time to have you back again. I mean, we all know Ellie, it's the brains behind the operation. So let's get straight to that one. But yeah, hopefully we can get you back again. Or maybe Ellie, this might be a good preface for us to finally do like a legit panel of some sort, like yeah. an extended like hour and a half panel chat. I like this format, but you know, whatever. yeah. That'd be fun. I'd love to have Chris back on that if we get to there. So <laughs> Yeah, I think we can set up a format that's a little less interrogation style. <laughs> <laughs> Compare and contrast approaches. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> All awesome. right. Well, Chris, thank you so it. much. Thank you. Thank you for joining AZT, an independent series. Your hosts have been Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis. To learn more about Zero Trust, go to adoptingzerotrust.com, subscribe to our newsletter or join our Slack community. Viewpoints expressed during the show do not reflect the brands, employers or companies of our hosts, guests or potential sponsors.